Yay! Oh shit! Oh! Oh no! No! Mike, we've been waiting for fucking weeks for a damn story. You want to do this bullshit right now? Oh man, you're recording, man. Let me turn this off. Five years ago, I graduated at Arizona Community College with a GPA lower than my typical blood alcohol content, a degree as flimsy as my diploma, and absolutely no direction to my future. I spent the first year in my parents' basement, sifting through online applications and tailoring unique resumes for every open position I could Google. My parents terminated my free rent after months of rejection letters outweighed the junk mail in their mailbox and I turned to couch surfing with my friends. Considering they had similar attributes to myself, I was technically sleeping on their parents' couches, and that phase of my life lasted far shorter than I had planned. As my couch reserves dropped desperately low, so did my job aspirations and pride. I started to apply for less lucrative positions, scouting around the dregs of job sites in a narrow region where I felt just between overqualified for burger flipping and underqualified for what I wanted. Almost immediately, despite my previous failures, I received a reply. Dear sir, as per the attached documents, we have approved your application to become a contributing member of our team. We take pride in our servers consisting of only the highest quality individuals, and as such, we require a comprehensive drug examination prior to employment. Please review our hourly rates and medical package. Thank you for your time. Servers for elegance. What's ours is yours. With a click, I opened up the attached file, and my eyes widened at the pay rate. Plus, there was a medical package? Something I had long given up hopes of attaining. I smiled. For once the severity of my financial situation had come to my advantage, as I had not purchased any form of drugs in months, and my friends had already made too many comments about me taking advantage of their weed that had stopped asking. I couldn't even afford the high strength sleeping pills I took regularly, ones that had quadrupled the recommended dosage because of a tolerance I had built over the years. The next week I stopped by for a drug test. The document specified a certain clinic on the outskirts of my city, and I drove by twice before catching the alleyway it was nestled into. The insides looked dim, and the sign worn. After entering a small waiting room, I was ushered inside by an attendant who spoke little to no English and into a back room. I'll need your arm, said the doctor. An Asian man with a gaunt face framed by wispy gray hair and a perpetual frown. You what? I asked. On the way to the office, I had downed four water bottles in preparation for the test, but there was no urinal in sight. Your arm, sir. The employer specified that only a blood test would suffice. They have those? Blood tests, I mean? How long do those go back? Perspiration started crawling down my back. I hated needles, and while I was fairly sure I would pass a urination test, I was just as sure I would not pass a blood test. Without an answer, he pricked my finger and obtained several vials of red fluid. Done, he said, tucking away the vials into his front pocket. Don't those go in some sort of container? I asked, raising an eyebrow. 
Mister, he paused, looking at his notebook. Trivio, uh, I assure you I am a professional. You can expect your results in less than a week, and your employer will contact you. <coughs> in the next few days, a lady from the human resources called and went over my schedule. Every week, the staffing agency informed their employees of their next destination, sometimes only hours in advance. I worked weddings, funerals, graduations, events, anything else a wealthy enough customer felt there was a need for a professional staff. The best gigs were typically offered to servers with the highest seniority, and due to relatively high turnover rates, I quickly rose among the other servers. Even the ones with the highest seniority did not tend to stay long, disappearing in a fashion typical to the service industry. And three years in, after I became a senior member, I was invited for my first shift at the Henley Hotel. Almost no servers were invited to the Henley Hotel. It was known for the highest tips, with the wealthiest patrons and upper management seemed to choose at random who would be invited in. Even seniority fell insufficient before their whims. Henley Hotel was across the border to California, and due to California's health laws, I had to stop back in the clinic to attain more blood work in a small shot. The clinic's hallways were dirtier than I remembered, but I was in and out faster than last time, and soon on my way to Henley Hotel. A fleet of Mercedes were parked inside the gated parking lot, and I pulled up to the guard station and flashed my papers to be allowed inside. Hmm... He said, scanning the papers. The computer's rejecting these copies. It's only programmatic to receive cleared staff. Oh, oh, wait. Oh, sorry. It just went through. Carry on. I parked and walked through a small courtyard lit by candles that showed me the way to the side door. Inside, intricate chandeliers dangled in the hallway, their bulbs reflecting off of mirrors bolted on the ceiling. An attendant pointed me through a small side door and through an intricate system of passageways that exist behind the walls of every hotel. I passed an elevator, marked with this swinging broken sign across its face, and took the back stairs up to the ballroom floor. You! Said the head chef when I entered the kitchens, handing out the plates of hors Take one of these and man the area around table 73. The elder gentleman there requested for wine as well. Bring it to him! It's the Raisling. Ask the bartender for the 1969 bottle. The event is in his order, so do it on the fly. Come on, chop, chop, let's go, let's go. Chop, I'm chop. right on it, chef. I said, took the plate, fetched the wine, and started passing out tempura shrimp near table 73. Please bring me my wine, said the elderly man at the table, raising a shaking hand to accompany his shaking voice. Aged splotches covered his face, which strained as he coughed into a handkerchief. And he squinted at me before dropping me an instantaneous tip of $20. Two other waiters circled my same section. Nietzsche brought the old man a glass of wine, but he sent them away as soon as they came. His eyes followed me as the evening progressed, tracking me along the dining room. And once, I caught him talking to my manager and pointing in my direction. Is everything all right? I asked my manager after catching him in the back where the customers could not see. All right, splendid. The host wanted to pass along his compliments for you and asked that you have a beer on him and the rest of the evening off. Just tell the bartender it's my request. Will I still get paid? Of course, lighten up. He's dropping a communal tip, double our typical values due to you. Now go, 
Go before you mess this up. I frowned at the portly man, then headed to the bar, where I was past a house beer. I'm no expert in beer, but this one had a slight tang to it, one that tasted slightly familiar. The night progressed, and I had another beer, listening to the classic rock cover band at the front of the ballroom. Couples danced on the floor, swinging in a motion that made my eyelids flutter as my head grew heavy. Across the floor, my manager gave me a look and gave me a casual thumbs up with a smile. I yawned and midway through, realized where I recognized that tang taste of my beer. Sleeping pills. It was the same aftertaste of the sleeping pills I had taken for years. With a jolt, my eyes opened and my head snapped up. Now not only was the manager staring at me, but also the elder man from table 73 and the bartender. Gonna use the bathroom, I said, pushing back my chair and walking past the bottles of pink champagne. The room had started to spin, but my tolerance resisted the sleeping effects as I hustled out of the room. When I reached the maze of back hallways, I heard the sound of footsteps behind me and quickened to a weaving run. The footsteps quickened, and I turned to see the reddening face of my manager sprinting to catch up to me. Even in my condition, I knew I could outrun him, but also knew I could not outrun the bartender who appeared at his shoulder. I took two quick turns losing myself in a labyrinth, though I could hear them gaining behind me and another set of footsteps approaching from ahead. Then, around the corner, I saw the broken elevator from earlier and uttered a quick prayer. I jammed my finger to the button and the relic creaked to life. The doors opening to reveal a dark chamber with plastic wrapped walls. Before the doors fully closed, I slipped inside and repeatedly pressed the door close button with frantic intensity. As the doors closed, I saw my manager snarl through a final sliver of light and the shaft began to move downward. The elevator jolted and clicked down the shaft, helping me in my fight to keep aware. It seemed as if it took an entire minute to reach its destination and I realized I had accidentally hit the basement button instead of the ground floor. The doors opened, and what I saw made me step back deeper into the elevator. The basement was illuminated by harsh incandescent bulbs. A surgical table was centered between two stands carrying various medical instruments. Beyond the table was a furnace leading to the hotel heating, with a door large enough to pass the entire table. A man stood in a white lab coat, his back to me, and he spoke as he primed a syringe. You, you brought him out some. Expensive as your network is, <clears throat> I'm, su- I'm surprised you were able to find three donors with matching organs for the client. It's quite a rare case, and to give him his choice between the three was quite the luxury. Go ahead, bring him to the table. The elevator doors began to close again. The man turned at my silence. In shock, I recognized his gaunt face as the doctor from the clinic. No! He shouted, lunging toward the closing door. But it was too late. They slammed in front of him, cutting him off just as he threw a surgical knife. The steely knife stabbed me in the arm, barely piercing the fabric of my server attire, but nowhere near a vital organ that would kill me. I heard his voice calling from far away. You can't leave. 
The lift struggled upwards, having a much harder time on a return trip, and opened on a ground floor. The last thing I remember inside, I was running for the door, back through the courtyards to my car, paying no attention to the vehicles that cost more than my entire life earnings on the way. I revved the engine, and my car shot forward, crashing into a statue of an eagle that fell and broke in half on the pavement. I cursed, threw the gears into reverse, and smashed through the gate at the guard building. Behind me, I heard gunshots. I arrived home in half the time it had taken to travel to the hotel and spent the night on a friend's couch. The next morning, I left for the outskirts of the city, driving to the medical clinic where I had my blood work. The building was empty. I posted this story on another site and was told I should post it here. So, I set up a Reddit account and here I am. This is my first post. When I was about 18, I got a telephone call from a strange man. The phone in my room rang and I went in and answered it. He asked, is this John? And I acknowledged that it was. He told me his name in a tone that implied that he expected me to know who he was. I was clueless. He asked me again if I was me and I had no choice but to again say that yes, I was in fact me. He then said, I'm calling to make sure you're okay. You look pretty shook up yesterday. At this point I had to tell him that I had no idea what he was talking about. I had been fine the day before. He pressed on. Yesterday? When you wrecked your car? Sir, I, I think you may have the wrong number. This is John, right? Yes, sir. My name is John. And you live in, uh, Castig? Yes, sir, that's me, uh, but I didn't wreck my car yesterday. Over the course of a very confusing and uncomfortable 15 minutes, he proceeded to tell me about our meeting the day before. I had come around the corner in front of his house too fast, lost control, and hit a large oak tree in his front yard. I had been shaken up, but the car was drivable and I'd refuse all offers of help. He managed to get me to reveal my name before I left, and I told him that I was on my way home to that small town, but nothing else. He described me, my size, my shape, my hair length and color. He described my car, not the make and model, but the size, shape and color. At first I thought it was a put-on, that a friend was pranking me, but as the conversation progressed, the man's concern was convincing. He had been so worried about me that he looked me up and called to make sure I was okay. By the end of the conversation, I managed to convince him that I was okay, that I really didn't know anything about it. He had given me his name and address over the course of the call, and he invited me to stop by some time. When I hung up the phone, I was actually curious. I went outside and looked at my car. No damage. Everything was just as I remembered it. I shook my head and walked back inside. A few days later I was driving home and this phone call was echoing around the back of my mind. I remembered the man's name and what part of town he lived in. It wasn't far off my route home so I looked him up in the phone book and got his address and headed that way. As I came around a sweeping bend in the road I saw a house like the one he had described. 
In the front yard was a large oak, and there were marks in the grass where a car had recently left the road, leading straight towards the tree. And on the tree, paint that perfectly matched my car. I was so shaken that I almost ran off the road. My twin and I used to do everything together. We were on the same sports teams, in the same classes, and had the same friends. We were identical, both in body and personality, to the point where we can even fool our parents. When we grew up there, I heard him sing at night as we talked before going to sleep. We'll live in the same house. We'll do everything together. Of course, Vicar, I'd said, snuggling under my covers. Nothing will ever separate us. But we were wrong. Something did. At night, we used to play with the other children in our neighborhood. Games like Capture the Flag and Manhunt. Games that required skill and stealth and hiding. And over the years, Vicar and I discovered drain tunnels that led throughout our city block underneath a loose manhole cover. By traversing these tunnels, we could pass undetected for hundreds of yards, traveling underground while the other kids couldn't see us. We kept a secret to ourselves, running at a crouch along the tunnels, our sneakers splashing through the tunnels, and we were known as the best at the games. But there was one time when we were hiding in the tunnels, when a flashlight shone down from above, and I saw a blue uniform peering through a surface grate. The light hit my eyes, and I froze as my face met that of an older man, his mustache turned in a frown. Cops! shouted Vicar, and he started running, the sound of his footsteps echoing back along the tunnels. For ten seconds I couldn't move, then I followed after him, doing my best to keep up with his panting that seemed just around the next turn. The tunnels turned unfamiliar, twisting in patterns I didn't recognize, sloping downward until drainage pipes became sewers, and I waded through water rather than splashed through puddles. Fair! I heard from time to time, though whether it was imagination or reality that brought the hoarse voice to my ears, I'll never know. Vicar! I called back, my own voice dying from the repetition of screaming for help. I remember those six hours I spent wandering below the surface to be the loneliest of my life, with no indication of which way was to the surface until the light of dawn spilled through the cracks in the concrete high above me. And even then, I found my way to the surface only by luck, navigating a labyrinth off of guesswork alone. They found me sobbing when I reached the surface, and they never found Vicar, except for a single shoe floating along a swifter current of water, one too deep for an inexperienced swimmer like him to stay afloat. My parents would never say it, but I heard my mother crying late at night and I saw the police report that eventually made its way into my family's hands. We never had a funeral for Vicar, because my father refused to believe in the unthinkable, and left the back door unlocked even after I left for college. I knew the truth. I felt as if I could sense the severed connection, as if a part of me had been taken by Vicar that day, the day that Vicar, as I alone would admit, died. But that all happened years ago, and though the event was traumatizing, I learned to move on. 
I've recovered, attended university, found a degree and a wife and had kids of our own. And as my parents started to age, I convinced my wife to move back to that old city block. And just as my father refused to admit Vicar's death, I refused to admit what I heard when we moved in. When I took my first shower in our house, I heard a raspy voice calling, There, there, help me, from the drain. Or when I brushed my teeth and bent down to spit out my toothpaste, and I hear panting down the sink. Or when I get up for a glass of water at night, and I race back to my bed, trying to outrun the words coming from the faucet. When we grow up, we'll live in the same house. We'll do everything together.